Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Na mihi nui and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance ho. And a big congratulations to all the Kiwi scientists who've been awarded science honours. More than 21 medals and awards were handed out at a celebration in Auckland this week. The highest New Zealand Science Award is the Rutherford Medal, which this year goes to Professor Colin Wilson, a geologist at Victoria University of Wellington. I study volcanoes. The bigger, the better. And supervolcanoes, which are Colin's speciality, don't come much bigger than New Zealand's own Taupo supervolcano and Yellowstone in the United States. The Taupo volcano is very active, even though mostly what you see today is a lovely lake, filling the caldera that was left behind last time. It's been exploding on and off for the past 300,000 years. Taupo is certainly one of the great volcanoes worldwide. It was home of the world's youngest super eruption, which is a bragging right thing in the volcanology world for an eruption that puts out more than about 500 cubic kilometres of molten rock. And when in was one that? Go. That was around 25,500 years ago. That's the youngest one we know of on planet Earth. And the second biggest eruption we know of in the world in the last 100,000 years. So Taupo. As a volcano, has a history of one truly enormous eruption and a number of smaller but still formidable eruptions. The last time it blew its top was 1,800 years ago. The Topo eruption, as it's known, was considered a small eruption, but it was still large enough to cover all of New Zealand with a centimetre of ash, and it buried the Topo Basin in a pyroclastic flow of ash and pumice that was up to 100 metres deep. No one has ever witnessed the destructive might of a really big eruption. So you might think of supervolcanoes as the world's largest cold cases. And Colin and his students and colleagues are the volcano detectives deciphering the clues left behind. So what kind of picture have they been building? We more and more are starting because the Americans boast about Yellowstone, for example, we're more and more starting to treat the whole of the rhyolitic areas of the central North Island as a single system, because the more we discover about them, the more we find evidence that volcanoes that are 80 kilometres apart, like Topo and Okataina, seem to communicate somehow, that they change their behaviour in response to eruptive activity at the other volcano. So now our latest uh, scheme is to present the whole of the central North Island as a single supervolcanic system, a very, very complex system, but very frequently eruptive on a world scale. And with that system, the amount of molten rock being pumped through the Earth's crust is about the same size as Yellowstone. And those two between them are the two biggest uh, volcanic systems of their type on Earth. 
So in terms of that molten rock, if you peeled back the surface layer, what would we see under Taupo at the moment? It's a very good question. That's what our program that's just been funded is intended to try and answer. Um, it all depends how deep you're prepared to dig. To find molten rock, you have to go down probably the order of four to five kilometres, uh, which sounds an impressive distance to dig until you realise that the geothermal drill holes that pepper the central North Island go down to 3.2 kilometres, so it's not that far beyond drill rig capacity. And as you dig deeper, you find different parts of the volcano laid bare in exactly the same way as if you performed an anatomical dissection on a, on a human body. You'd see different parts as you go deeper. So the shallow part is faulted. It is basically the material thrown out by the volcanoes. There probably is grey wacky underneath there, country rocks still intact in places. And then once you reach about four kilometres depth, you'll start to intersect the frozen remnants of magma that collected in the past but failed to erupt for one reason or another and has cooled back to form, in essence, a granite, a plutonic rock. So when you say frozen, it's not actually cold? Uh, it's just no, not liquid? it is very hot, uh, hundreds of degrees centigrade. It is just not liquid. And then as you go down further, what you will find is that you come into what has been named mush, which is material that is, in the strict sense, magma. It contains melt, but melt in such small quantities that the overall material can't erupt. It's too viscous, it's too sticky, too many crystals in it. So it's like trying to stir sand in which there's a little bit of water. And that probably goes down at least to the order of 15 kilometres, quite likely further deep, but we're still struggling to see it in terms of geophysics, in terms of geology. And within that zone, that's where the magma bodies are created. For some reason, which is one of the reasons we're still intrigued and studying it, the melt that is in between the crystals can be gathered together to form a body of nearly all liquid rock with just a few crystals in it. And these are what feed individual eruptions. And so part of the challenge with volcanoes like Taupo and Okataina, and similarly for many other volcanoes of that type worldwide, the challenge is to work out why and how does that melt decide to pool together to produce something that's capable of erupting. Do you have any thoughts? In the Ronoi eruption, which was the monster supervolcano eruption, some very clever work done by a student of mine, Aidan Allen, uh, looked at the zonation in the crystals that were brought up of different minerals, in particular one called orthopyroxene, which is an iron-magnesium mineral, very common, but it showed in its textures that these crystals had gone through a rather traumatic experience of growing at some considerable depth, then being brought up very, very rapidly to shallow levels and having another coating, another layer growing on them. Now, 
as those crystals are growing at shallow levels, the sharp boundaries that are created by their rise from deeper levels start to blur out through a process called diffusion. And we can model that process. We can measure the degree of blurring of boundaries within the crystals. And provided we can put a, a temperature on the system, we can estimate a time scale. And when we did that, it turned out that nearly all of that vast magma body accumulated in only the order of a few hundred years maximum, and most of it within the order of a century prior to the eruption. So what we're doing as the next stage of the work is to see whether that approach will work for younger eruptions. What it suggests is it's not a characteristic that's inherent to the system it's something that's imposed from outside and our strong suspicion is and we have other evidence to support this is that the pulling apart of the central north island which is part and parcel of the whole tectonic and faulting activity of the north island served to rupture the mush at depth. Imagine it's like a sponge full of water and instead of trying to let the water come out through the sponge just collapsing under its own weight, you take a very sharp knife and you slash through the sponge and the water will come pouring out. We think that may have been what happened and if that is correct then it opens up a whole new world of possibilities as to processes that might operate at volcanoes and the means whereby you might monitor them and look out for those processes occurring. It's still very early days. We don't know whether we've stumbled across a whole new way of thinking about the way volcanoes operate, but the results so far, which tally in with other estimates that are coming from workers overseas working on other volcanoes, suggest that they are much more... Um, variable than we first thought. Instead of quietly building for tens of thousands of years towards an event, they're absolutely dead to the world for many thousands to even tens of thousands of years and then come into life for relatively short time periods to produce the magma bodies that are eventually thrown out in the eruptions. The challenge at a place like Taupo is to work out, well, why do we get these little tiny small eruptions like the dome at Acacia Bay from the same volcano that produces something like the 232 AD eruption, which laid waste to most of the central North Island? Those are the sort of challenges we're trying to look at to understand and to think, is it just purely random or there are there reasons why this occurs that might give us clues to forecasting future activity. But what you're saying really is that the process that you've worked out in the central North Island, that with this plate boundary pulling apart and, and unzipping that mush, that might not be the same me mechanism that works at somewhere like Yellowstone? The irony is it did at Yellowstone. We ah. don't have the time scale pinned down as well at Yellowstone. There is work still to be done there. But some work I did with uh, a collaboration with a group at the University of Oregon and a student, Madison Myers, we looked at the products of the very first stages of the first of the monstrous Yellowstone eruptions, the Huckleberry Ridge Tuff, which is something of the order of five times bigger than the Aurora Noe. It's, it's, it's one of the great chest-beating, floor-stamping, snorting 
eruptions of the last two and a half, three million years. And yet it started off very hesitantly, almost apologetically, you know, excuse me, I, I, I think I need to erupt now, put out a little bit of material, and then stopped. And then started again, probably after a few days, and then stopped again. And the very beautiful work that was done on it suggested that it wasn't a single vent, that there were three vents, that there were three what we would call cupolas, like fins on a whale, poking up from the main vast magma body below the surface, and that these three little portions erupted first from different vents. And, and the best way we can explain this is that these vents were unzipped by faulting, by rifting processes. And what's fascinating us, and I have a student here at Victoria University, Elliot Swallow, working on his PhD on a lot of the chemistry and, and the nature of that magma body, is the fact that we know there's this vast amount of molten rock there just all waiting to come roaring out over the landscape and yet it took this very delicate very gentle start somewhere in there are very important clues to how that particular eruption started and so much of my work has shown that if you take a lot of time and care to really try and reconstruct eruptions the information comes out that suggests they're very much more subtle and variable than the textbooks would have you believe. There's, there's one school of thought that the bigger the eruption, the bigger the bang, you know, it's drums, trumpets, got a damarung, say goodbye. No, they're far more nuanced. And within that Huckleberry Ridge eruption, for example, there's evidence of a time break of the order of a few decades in the eruption. When so, it so it had a lie-down? It had a lie-down. So it started off very grumpily, like a teenage kid. Little, little bits going, little bits going. And then things went quite vigorous. The roof fell in, so there was a massive blast, very big volume blast. And then it stopped, probably for the order of a few months, and then had another pretty big blast and then it stopped for the order of a few decades and then it had a third one and how do you do this that's that's the that's the real question and is this common how people have not really studied these things in that level of detail to be able to pick up this but i just put that eruption in my mind's eye in present day USA, especially with the present-day administration. I just wonder how you would react to it. And so what's coming out of this work is the idea that with the right tools, and we're now starting to develop those with improvements in analytical techniques, with improvements of understanding of processes of diffusion, and I work with some very clever people who understand this, we can start to put human timescales onto past geological events, even those that happened tens of thousands or millions of years ago, to the stage where we could take those eruptions and drop them into modern-day society and see how modern-day society might react. And that then leads to the ultimate question is, how would you have known what was coming next? 
and that's a, a, a major focus of what I love to accomplish in the next phase of the work. That was geologist Colin Wilson from Victoria University of Wellington, winner of the 2017 Rutherford Medal. I'm Alison Balance, and this Our Changing World story first aired on RNZ National on the 12th of October 2017. Don't forget, you can find us at rnz.co.nz as well as on the RNZ app. And you can subscribe to our podcast at iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and bye for now. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.